have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. Welcome to the laid-back episode of the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I'm <sighs> Khalil, and with me today is the trusty lawnmower to my determined old man. Now, I was starting, after you gave that intro, I was thinking of giving some ASMR, but I don't know what lawnmower ASMR sounds like. I think it's like the sound of the lawnmower outside, like the distant, reassuring sounds of the lawnmower outside. Maybe some crinkling grass. Does grass crinkle? I'm the unplugged professor. Today we're talking about the straight story from 1999. You know, when I think of 1999, I think of the Y2K and I think of the straight story. <laughs> and by that, I mean, I don't think about the straight story. I forget this movie exists sometimes. And okay. that's, that's, that's on me. When I think of David Lynch movies, I think of, okay, well, there was The Lost Highway, and then it goes to Mulholland Drive, and then it goes to Inland Empire. And I forget that there's just this, you know, G-rated Disney movie in the midst of this. I'm sorry, Khalil, but knowing you and knowing media you enjoy, even the amount of Disney you marathon, I don't think that this is a film for you. I don't think that this is at any point, like, in any point portion of your radar whatsoever no no not at all so why are we reviewing it today or looking into it or dealing with it on our journey with david lynch see because this movie is so different from what you would normally expect from david lynch maybe it's the outlier that proves some points maybe there's things to glean from this movie that'll help us give insight and you do not know how important the straight story might be for the return it's you don't know it's basically a retelling yeah the part where <laughs> the part where kyle mclaughlin turns into a lawnmower <gasps> spoilers <laughs> you can't know about that uh content warnings also um mm. kind of so with these david lynch movies there's a lot of dark theming happening this one is g-rated so even when there's things brought up that might be sensitive it's done in a very family-friendly way that being said there's some subject matter that might be something you don't want to hear about maybe you've had a past experience with it or someone you know so there is some talking here about ptsd um war trauma there is some stuff in here with a uh, teen pregnancy Mm -hmm. appears to be an unplanned pregnancy mm -hmm. and there's some stuff here with some some family fighting uh you think of anything else um someone who had their kids taken away from them uh mm. there's also if you don't really like the sight of dead animals yeah there's a very there's a very minor scene with a dead deer yeah so I'm still a dead body yeah i mean we've seen stilt meat deers on stage yep from, from Lynch before. This is relatively tame. Again, all this is within the context of a G-rated movie. I think it'd be like PG by today's standards, but... Yes. This is the most family-friendly Disney... Uh, not Disney. This is the most family-friendly David Lynch movie. This, we shall say, is the most family-friendly bring them all to the theater all together now Disney film. I, I don't Better know. Better <laughs> than, say, the story of toys. Or the what, what voice Notre are you doing Dame right now? Hunchback from the cathedral. Notre Dame. Oh man. <laughs> um, I would say Notre Dame. That's why it always throws me off when you're supposed to say Notre Dame. Um, anyway, so this, there, there's the potential. We might get him some spoilery stuff. Um, mm -hmm. obviously for the movie, we're gonna spoil the whole dang thing. Normally, we like to mix up the order, but this one's probably gonna be following the movie order pretty closely, likely because it's a linear journey. Yes. So we are gonna go through the movie pretty linearly. We also may or may not mention spoilers for Twin Peaks, including Fire Walk with Me, The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. We might also get into potentially other David Lynch movies and short films that he made 
prior to the straight story. Trivia sources for this particular episode come from IMDb, Wikipedia, the Disney Wiki, Texas Public Radio, and RogerEbert.com. Didn't want to go for Goomba Stomp this time? No Goomba this Stomp this time. This does not remind you of Silent this Hill? This does not remind me of Silent <laughs> Hill in any particular way. As you mentioned before, this is not necessarily my kind of movie. I do think it is perfectly fine. Um, when I first watched this years ago, I think I judged it a little bit unfairly because I was coming off the high of watching all these David Lynch films for the first time. I got to the straight story with a lot of expectations mm -hmm. because I was liking the rest of what I was seeing. <laughs> and I think as a result of it, I was looking for the kind of atmosphere and mood and themes and writing that just are not part of the straight story. It's not that kind of movie. Yeah. So I, I formerly had given it like a two out of five, four out of ten. I think that's harsh. I don't think it's a badly made film. I think it's a well-made film. I think it's got a lot of good production value, a lot of good acting. I think the soundtrack's really well-made. I think the shots are good, et cetera, et cetera. I just find it boring. I, I think the story that's being told here is interesting for like a little bit, but I don't think it sustains my interest for an hour and 50 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, I know it doesn't sustain my interest. I, I find it a little hard to um, really keep with it. And a lot of the life advice while good, I think it's often good advice. It feels kind of hackneyed to me. Okay. It's very like G Willikers inspirational music cue. As soon as someone says something vaguely wise and I just kind of end up rolling my eyes at it. It's just not my kind of thing. It's my least favorite David Lynch film, mm -hmm. but I'd still give it like a five out of 10. Even the worst David Lynch film to me is not bad. Very well. I just don't think it's above average. <laughs> what did you think professor who is unplugged did this movie plug you in? Um, I don't know if that sounds sexual or what no, that is. Like, there's hardly any usage of, uh, of electricity throughout this entire Electricity. Feature. This film overall is one of the more cozier films that I've seen in a while, but mostly because I myself had grown up inside the Midwest area. I've grown up inside like farm-like areas, and there's um, a very heavily like small-town feel that is felt throughout this film, mm. if you will. Uh, even with some of the characters, which I find very not common, if you will. Like, I know this is a, one of those tales in which, like, they're retelling the story of this one person, etc., etc. But still, uh, following the adventures of this older uh, war veteran man as he's trying to seek out his uh, older brother, this is something that I could see sitting down with my whole family and mm -hmm. watching, and maybe my family is just more so noticing through it and just through a conversation that's happening over the holiday, it'll be a nice, cozy film. Now, if you were to go in alone, I don't know what demographic you look for on this unless, like, Disney is really trying to push for, like, the mid-'70s war veteran. Yeah, I think Disney hit most of the other markets already by that point. You know, I think they were just looking for those 70-year-olds. Pretty big demographic. But yes, I would say that for the overall cozy nature, for the familiar points, especially whenever it came to some of the atmospheric shots that just sort of let the... Let myself sort of like put myself down just to like look at it and just enjoy it for the overall scope. I think that there's a good balance between uh, cinematography and score mm -hmm. through it, uh, especially in uh, different Lynch ways where, say, for example, you're getting a good idea of like the world around you as opposed towards the very silent moments inside of the Ace Hardware as they're trying to push a, this very strange, janky co uh, comedy. Mm -hmm. um, I went away in, enjoying it generally. I don't know how to deal with it with numbers as you do, yeah. if you will, because this is such a different like movie than I have like inside of my repertoire to judge against other films. 
it, I find it difficult myself. This feels like a movie that might come after like the Andy Griffith show that I might see at my grandparents' house. And, um, and the, the question I would try to pose to you, you know, to pin mm-hmm. you down wriggling to the wall, yes. would be to ask you whether or not you like watching this more than Blue Velvet. I know the first time you watched it, you weren't sure how to answer that question when I, I asked you. I don't know how to answer this question. Yeah. Because, so, again, I'm going in for, like, different things I don't, at that point. Blue Velvet, you weren't really a huge fan of by the end of it. I Here's the thing. This show, this movie, mm-hmm. rather, it's not going to be something that I'm going to sit down and watch. But if it's inside the background, it's pleasant to have in the background while I'm doing things. I don't know if Blue Velvet, I can say the same for that. I feel like I have to put some more attention to it, and then it sort of, like, yeah, grabs I, me. But at the same time, if I'm not enjoying what I'm looking at as much, um, then what is the better case Yeah, case? I guess it's the difference between, like, a nice calm spoon of vanilla pudding and taking a <laughs> bite into a very hot, spicy calzone. <laughs> What? You know? Excuse you? You might have like a very pleasant, calm experience with the vanilla pudding, you know? <laughs> but it's not comparable to the spicy calzone. The only way for this metaphor to fit with I just said, with Although, what also I just the said, is, is that you would have to spoon feed me yeah, the pudding I'll spoon as, feed I'm doing the pudding. The, as I'm doing other uh, tasks. Yeah, but the calzone, you got to eat yourself. <laughs> also, it's a blue calzone. It's made out of velvet. Blue calzone. And there's bugs inside the calzone. Why? Because there's bugs under the grass. It's a metaphor. And the I think pudding's you, made out of lawnmowers? I, I think you've lost the plot, friends. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think you've lost the plot. I, I, I think for me, a, a major element at play is that I typically am less interested in the films that Lynch did not write or did not work on the screenplay for. Okay. So for Elephant Man and for Dune, they were adapted screenplays. Lost Highway was as well, but I feel like it was more of a cooperative effort with the author. Very well. This one, straight up, David Lynch was not involved in the screenplay, and it's the only film he's made where he wasn't involved in the screenplay. Okay. His long-term collaborator, Mary Sweeney, was involved in the screenplay, so there was someone close to Lynch who kind of knew his sensibilities involved. Um, he like later married her for like a year. So you okay. know, they, clearly they knew each other, I guess, uh-huh. but um, he wasn't specifically. And, and for that reason, I don't think it feels like it was written by Lynch. It doesn't feel like it was written by David Lynch. Maybe it feels directed by him at points, but not really his style of dialogue or his style of scenarios. I think that there's like elements of it, like say, for example, the first dialogue within about probably the first five or 10 minutes of the film, uh, especially like, say, for example, if we are to compare it with some very choice opening mm. words and dialogue from something like putting up an example of Blue Velvet again. But I do think that the majority of it does not feel as entwined. But then again, what is David uh, Lynch film? Is it enough to say that one that shows some like director fingerprints on it? Is that, or is it going to be something in which it's like as invested as David Lynch can be and yeah. submerge his face into I, it? There's, because there's that's a degrees. weird standard to put to, especially with other directors, because not many people direct and put themselves into something as David Lynch. Yeah, no, David Lynch is, is one of the most hands-on and immersive. And, and really ever since Dune, it's felt that way. I think Eraserhead was such a personal project that that was, it was bleeding his influence. I think mm-hmm. Blue Velvet was also kind of a similar boat. Um, when you get to things like Wild at Heart and Lost Highway, there's more of a middle ground because he's working with other author. Yeah. But I think, yeah, Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire, Eraser, those are pretty purely Lynch. What's weird is that people use the term Lynchian to describe a lot of things. I think it's often overused. Um, but it's it's oftentimes used to describe very weird or out of the ordinary kinds of storylines that are very dreamy or dark. And 
Twin Peaks is oftentimes considered, you know, very Lynchian. When Lynch was obviously the director of the pilot, he was, you know, co-creator of the first episode, he was not there the majority of the episodes. That can still be an argument, say, for example, an area of influence that's yes. to be able to He set the tone from forward. the beginning. He set the tone with Frost, but it's always been Frost at least equally. I think that the biggest part of it is just more so potentially unintentional marketing of yeah. his overall person. The, and to be fair, Twin Peaks was such a huge height of popularity that yeah. it brought David Lynch's name out there more. So I, yeah, no, no, make, make, make a mistake. It makes sense why people associate Lynch's name with Twin Peaks. But mm -hmm. even then, how Lynchian is Twin Peaks when he is not the main writer or director for the entire series? <laughs> I remember like tabulating it, and it's like you look at people like Harley Payton, you know, or Leslie Linka Glotter, you know, and their involvement of the series, or again, Mark Frost or Robert Engels, and how much they were involved in the show. And mm -hmm. yet, Lynch gets the majority of the hype. From yeah. Twin Peaks, which doesn't feel fully fair to mm -hmm. me. Anyway, back to back to the straight story. <laughs> We're not talking about the Twin Peaky story. We're talking about the straight. This is there's the no, Twin Peaks logcast. We no, should be talking there's about no Twin Chevron. Peaks. There's no Chevron. There's only straight and narrow lines <laughs> of <mean>. the highway. <laughs> anyway, this movie is based on a true story. Um, it is based on the real life story of Alvin Strait, who lived from 1920 to 1996. Uh, he lived, you know, three years after he took the journey originally yeah. and then passed away a few years before this film was made. But not not too long after. Mm -hmm. It was still relatively recent. Mm -hmm. The actor who played Alvin Strait, uh, Richard Farnsworth, was the exact same age that Alvin Strait was at the time of shooting. So, like, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. they, they managed to get someone born in 1920 to play the guy who was born in 1920. Seems appropriate. Mm-hmm. Also kind of interesting, in the film, the brother is named as Lyle, mm -hmm. but in reality, his name is Henry. Uh, it appears that the actual brother's name was Henry, and from what I was reading from a few different sources, it sounded like that wasn't an error, but most likely it was Alvin's brother not wanting his real name used in the film. Just okay. to kind of give a little more anonymity, to give a little bit more anonymity. <laughs> and otherwise, it seems like this is fairly faithful. I don't know if every instance happened this way. I don't know if he met the hitchhiker. I don't know. And I, I'm sure there there are accounts that if one was to do the research, which I did not, one God could find out. Clear. This is important, <laughs> especially when it's like based on a true story. We were over this with Elephant Man. Have you learned nothing? See, I am also respecting David Lynch here. David Lynch said this is most his most experimental movie. So out of respect for David Lynch, this is our most experimental podcast. No, it's not! It's called Don't this Do Your Research. This is the status quo! <laughs> Just see what happens when you don't do the research. <laughs> anyway, the movie seems pretty accurate. I don't hear or read a lot of concerns about accuracy with this film. Okay. No one's decrying any other injustices. It's just the brother's name was changed is the biggest obvious thing. Okay. When asked why he wanted to direct a movie like this, seeing it was so different from the rest of his projects, David Lynch said that when he read the screenplay for the first time, he felt such a strong emotion that he decided he wanted to be the one responsible to bring that emotion to the screen. Do you also, when you're experiencing the story, admittedly filtered through this film, do you feel a strong emotion about this story of the straight story? Um, does it move you? It. Or are you cold-hearted like a tin man? <laughs> it makes me obviously concerned for just more so someone's well-being, seeing as that's a long path to take, and I don't know how well you will be, if you will, just driving on the roads. I don't know the legalities of what he was doing in the biggest part. The 90s like, like, were like the, the Wild West, man. Like, like driving onto the road, okay, fine. Like if he's using the back roads, because I think that's still yeah. around the 90s, there would probably like be some form of speed mini uh, minimums that 
He would have to go, but that's more so interstate. This seems to be more so back roads heading uh, up okay. north, 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 north. Um, I'm just more concerned of, like, staying on other people's lands and just camping there, like, with your stuff, you know? Yeah. Like, the, the, the straight story could have ended very differently multiple times if those laws were in play. If this was any other David Lynch film, it could have also ended differently as well. This was also well. a... This isn't just a film now, is it? Yes, it's truth. Yes, yeah, six so weeks of truth. So did this truth stir your emotions? Um, Stirred them maybe not in the awe, this is sweet, but more so in the, huh. Yeah. Neat. And said, but again, I think that is <laughs> interesting. Law violations. I think that it's a comfortable film. Yeah, it's vanilla still, pudding. You just don't really, you, you don't realize the amount of time that goes through on this film. The way that it's paced and the way that it sort of like deals with it, what feels like a few days. Only in dialogue do you figure. Yeah, yep. I've been out here for four weeks. It's like what? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, he's been camping what? every day out in the middle of nowhere, and people. He property. doesn't drive out at night, so that yeah. means yes, uh, it's been a constant. And it seems that unless there's just something untold, he's never been caught. Yeah. <laughs> he can't catch him. He's too fast on that lawnmower. He's the fiercest trespasser where is the, the scene? Midwest has ever done. There should have been a scene in the movie where the cops tried to chase him, but he's too fast on the lawnmower. <laughs> um, this is a little side note, and I, I, I'm not going to call this a spoiler, but it is it is a contextual element. <laughs> I don't know. This, this does go into future things a little bit, but bear with me. Um, as of this podcast being made uh, in 2022. Hi. It's 2022. Right now, we're recording on the 2nd of March. This would remain the final film David Lynch would direct that began production as a feature film. Because the other two movies that he made after this, Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, began as not movies. Um, yeah. What does that mean? Um, so Mulholland Drive was originally going to be a television pilot. Oh. Yeah, for a show ah. to ABC. Oh. Yeah, we'll get to that later. Fine. And then Inland Empire was originally just a collection of things. That David Lynch shot. What do you mean a collection of things? He just shot some stuff with a digital camera and, and then made it into a movie. Pretty well documented. That's actually the process. He was like over in Poland and he was making some mixed media stuff. He was just going. And then he like fused in rabbits with it. And it, it's Inland Empire is not a normal movie. Okay. Even by like David Lynch standards, Inland <laughs> Empire is not a normal movie. I love it. I'm I adore scared. it. I cherish it. It is the butterscotch pudding. Why do you say it like that? Because <laughs> it, it is. The butterscotch the pudding. The butterscotch pudding. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so it's kind of weird. This is the last David Lynch film that was meant to be a movie. <laughs> I don't know how you want to take that, but... I don't know how to take that. Everything else started off as something else. And by everything else, <laughs> I mean two more. He really hasn't made that many movies in the 2000s. Okay. He's, he's made two. And then if you count if you count the return as a movie, you, you could do that, I guess. We are in that right now, going into the second decade. We're in the 20s right now. Yeah. Also. Yeah. <laughs> Production-wise, this film was actually shot along the real route taken by Alvin Strait. And the scenes are all shot in chronological order. Okay. So this was very literally a linear journey from Iowa to Wisconsin, I'm shot in the order in the actual route that was taken. I imagine that almost just for the sake of simplicity, it had to be. Mm -hmm. Not just because, like, transporting a whole entire, like, lawnmower and cargo to different points inside the Midwest, I don't see, like, a purpose of, like, trying to go, like, in different locations multiple times. I also think for, like, the crew involved, it might have been a good way to get in the mindset 
you know, the actual experience, especially for like the main actor. Yeah. Literally going the same route. I mean, obviously probably skipping along here and there, not driving tractors, you know, lawnmower <laughs> speed. Um, yeah, you could almost say that somewhat of the feel uh, of the film does actually kind of shift as like time goes on, especially with how they're handling dialogue. Mm-hmm. So I can see that. Mm-hmm. Also, just kind of a random thing, but it, it might be interesting to a few listeners out there. Yeah. Uh, Chris Farley was going to originally be in this movie with his brothers, but then Chris Farley sadly passed away in 1997 before he'd get the chance. Ah. I, I don't know much about Chris Farley, but I know he was kind of a, a prominent figure at that time when he passed. It was a pretty big deal. If it's going to be Chris Farley and his brothers, I would imagine, if I could think of the portion of the role, if it hasn't already been announced, probably the mechanics. Like later in the movie? Yeah. That's what I was thinking, too, from the little bit I know. Yeah, just from what I've seen of Chris yeah. Farley in the past and just the more so... Uh, comedic nature that they have. In my research, I did not find a for sure answer to that question. Farewell. And you know, listeners, I do my research. Sure. Thoroughly. Sure. Butterscotch pudding. Stop. This is also the only David Lynch film to be given a G rating. Uh, Pretty obviously, the other ones have not qualified for that. Yeah. Writing for Texas Public Radio, Nathan Cohn explains in an article, quote, Just over two decades ago, the Cannes Film Festival audience was stunned by a title card on screen at the premiere of one high-profile movie. Quote, Walt Disney Pictures presents a film by David Lynch. Lynch's previous two films had been Lost Highway, a dark neo-noir, and Fire Walk With Me, a prequel to Twin Peaks that trafficked in violent and bizarre imagery. When that title card came up, the whole audience laughed remembered screenwriter John Roach recently during a phone interview. Okay. So they're just sitting in the con film festival. Yeah. And they just see Walt Disney Pictures presents a film by David Lynch and everybody starts laughing. Okay. And this was by one of the screenwriters here. So I, this was the source that authenticated that. I, I don't know when they say uh, the whole audience laughed. I don't know if it was like a, like a little chuckle or if it was like, <laughs> I'm thinking a chuckle like Joker or level laughs. I, I don't know. Might, I think it might be a chuckle. I think it might even just be memory uh, emphasizing right. uh, things. Just because I don't, I don't even imagine that just sort of like just generally happening. I think that it might be like mildly. I, I can hear some like little murmurs. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know how big it was. You know, a yeah. lot of times with with film memories, you know, there's that classic story of the train going toward the screen, and everyone supposedly freaked out about the train was going to run them over, and it seems like that seems pretty exaggerated too. Uh, I don't know. Maybe this was the this is the metaphorical train, you know, for David Lynch is is the straight story at Con Film Festival. <laughs> As with many David Lynch releases, by the way, there on many DVD copies of this, there are no chapter markers because okay. David Lynch wants his films to be viewed as a whole. So generally, Lynch, when he gets the choice, uh, over time has pushed for not having chapter markers uh, to go between sections of the film because it's supposed to be one complete, continuous experience. So is a book, but it has chapters. Yep. Well, no, I mean, a book you're not necessarily supposed to do in one sitting all the time. Not everyone thinks you should read a book in one sitting. Whereas David Lynch would say you should watch the movie in one sitting. We're not watching The Return in one sitting. We are not doing that, Khalil. <laughs> That's the only true way to watch it, though, no, Professor. we are not going to do 18 that. 18 hours. I need sleep. I mean, it would be very funny to like get a good amount of sleep and then just marathon 18 hours of The I Return. I don't get what your sense of humor is. A lot of people actually do that. That's cool. I'm happy for them. I'm glad But for like, them. imagine going in, not having seen any of The Return, and then you just watch all 18 in a row. That would just change your life. 
Would it? Yes. Would it? I mean, yes. I I don't think it would. People binge watch shows all the time. I think they binge watch it, and I think that that's great. I tried binging like Harry Potter, but I can even tell audience members right now, I haven't seen almost all of Harry Potter, mostly because I was KO'd on donuts that day. It was an amazing Don't time. eat the donuts. It was so good, though. I mean, uh, to be fair, if you're going to binge watch Twin Peaks, I feel like donuts are probably an essential. They are. I'll pass out halfway well, through the it, coffee, and we'll never the see coffee the will keep you awake. All the caffeine we're going to inject into your veins directly. So this is a weird movie case where we can't really divide our sections into characters analysis because there's really one main character. Yeah. We do get more anecdotes about like the daughter or like people he runs into during his travels. But this movie is almost entirely about Alvin Strait as played by Richard Farnsworth. Yeah. Um, Side note that. A few other actors had been offered the lead role before it went to Farnsworth, and those three that are oftentimes cited are James Coburn, John Hurt, Jack Lemmon, and Gregory Peck. So John Hurt would have been the return of our Elephant Man actor there. Okay. So, yeah, and Gregory Peck, obviously very famous. Yeah, I, I know him from uh, the Kill a Mockingbird movie. But, um, so, yeah, Richard Farnsworth ended up getting the role. Originally, he was going to turn it down, though, because he didn't like the language used in Blue Velvet. And that's kind of what he knew Lynch from. <laughs> and after, you know, after several personal assurances by David Lynch and other writers that the film would contain no cursing, he finally did agree to do it. Um, in more sad news, just kind of for context on the actor, uh, although I hate to be the one to bring up the bad news all the time, uh, Richard Farnsworth uh, was terminally ill with bone cancer during the shooting of the film, okay. which had caused the paralysis of his legs. So not only was you know the character of Alvin Strait having trouble with his movement, that was also the case of the real-life Richard Farnsworth. Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually took the role out of admiration for Alvin Strait and astonished his co-workers because he kept pushing through it with his tenacity to do the role and to do the role well. That might actually... So I did look quickly on towards something like the Wikipedia page, if you will. And uh, one of the most notable things, like to note later on in the film is that um, this overall vehicle does like break down. Yep. And um, the main difference in it is that um, instead of like suddenly working again as a farmer passes by almost mythically, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, it's that farmer would help him push it up and having such weak legs in the first place uh, and degrading himself uh, physically, uh, I don't think would have just been possible. Uh, right. So. And, and, and the, the tragic part of this is, is that this pain was so severe that um, the following year after the movie, after he worked on it, he did die by suicide. Oh. Um, so at the age of 80. Oh. So it, it was his final role in film. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, again, it's hard with a movie like this that does go for this sort of wholesome, positive messaging. Mm-hmm. It is a dark shadow mm-hmm. looming over it that this actor, you know, he put all of this energy and emphasis into this last role out of kind of the love for the story mm-hmm. and the love for what this person had done and kind of respect for it that he wanted to put it to screen. Yeah. But it, it, it took a lot out of someone who was already really struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is again, very tragic to hear. It is. Anyway. Yeah. It's, it's hard to have a perfect segue from that. So that's really all I got for the context of this movie. There wasn't as much research necessarily for this one or as much background information as there have been a few other ones. It's, this movie was not hotly contested or, super controversial at the time. Even like straight story, it's really hard to get the, that much other than like overall accounts that we've heard thus far. Right. Mainly because uh, straight himself just didn't really even want too much attention himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would turn down things such as Tonight Show interviews and so on. So pretty straightforward, if you will. You know what else is straightforward? 
Star Wars. No. No. <laughs> yeah. So the opening of the movie opens up on stars. But instead of there being yellow letters scrolling across the the vertical I had to think of vertical is the right word. Vertical is the right word. Is it? Because like we're it's, going up more so of a Z plane than anyway, we are like X and Y. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it's blue font. Very calm blue font. I quite like the font. Yes, amongst these overall stars twinkling inside the sky. It's very atmospheric, if you mm-hmm. will, as a sound is playing in the a background. Beautiful a piano and strings music. Very ethereal. Very, dare I say, Bartolomentian. Yeah. <laughs> you dare say it. It you sounds a lot like something, mm-hmm. doesn't it? I think it sets the tone really nicely. I think, again, this is a very good soundtrack from Bottlementi. Doesn't sound like anything specific from Bottlementi at all? Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of remind me of the sound of mm-hmm. wind through trees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when the trees blow from the wind and you hear the sound of uh-huh. a girl... Her name is Laura Palmer. Yep, nope. <laughs> it feels like it's sort of like the overall atmospheric rise and fall that we do hear from Laura's theme, if mm-hmm. you will. Uh, but still, I think that mo- the more that I hear things like this, it's less of just like retraining old ground and just more so this is just the sound I would probably gain from Bottle Lamenti. This is just more so a Bottle Lamenti trademark know, sound. If you go to an ice cream shop, you know, you go to your local, you know, insert ice cream shop name here. And you order, you know, two scoops of some ice cream, you know. If you get one day, you get the cookies and cream. The next day, you get the butter pecan. The next day, you get, like, the birthday cake. You keep going on. You get the sausage. You get all the flavors that you expect from an ice cream shop. And after a while, you know, you're going to know what the ice cream tastes like. You know no. what's different, though? The toppings. The, the flavor enhancer, The conditions. Okay? You know, you're eating a turtle cheesecake ice cream on Halloween. That's going to hit different than if you're eating a... A red velvet cake <laughs> on Valentine's Day. This is much more just me speaking to you personally more than anyone else and anyone else who is interested uh, while I talk about it. Fantastic. But the, um, there's something called Gold Belly, yes. if you will. And it has all sorts of delicious foods. And there is um, something called a, a pie cake-in uh, done in by the pie cake-in a bake shop if you will. Mm-hmm. And for about $99 you oh, too can God. have a pie cake-in in which is like it's like pies and cakes molded into one. They're doing a St. Patrick's special. That's great for everyone involved. Uh, and it's got itself like you got yourself your whiskey pecan pie. Okay. Mm-hmm. You got yourself some Bailey's cheesecake. And then you got your gr- Guinness green velvet. Guinness. Guinness green no, velvet. Guinness. Guinness green velvet. Literally, this is this is for St. Patrick's Day. It's got to be Guinness. All layered together with salted caramel frosting. Yeah, so here's the thing. If it's $100 and you want to buy, Professor, I will try it. I'm out of a job, so well, I probably won't. But that no. frosting tastes delicious. Um, But still, there, there's all sorts of your flavors. Who needs that when you can just mold them all together in a delicious little pile, if you will? And that pile being bottle of minty. <laughs> He's a delicious pile, is what I'm saying. The bottom, the best way. Bottle of menti pile mm. of musical. I enjoy treats. his music, to say the least. <laughs> With this mild cake tangent aside. Do you enjoy the mild field tangent we then go through as we cut over the largely empty fields and largely empty small town life that sets the stage for the straight story? Very much so. I think there's multiple instances that this mm-hmm. happens, and I think each time, again, it's calm. It's yeah, nice the, no, this if this was wild at heart, they would have been sex scenes. 
But this movie transitions with fields. They didn't somehow allow it, it. They didn't allow it for the Disney yeah. film. So instead, that they had the things that went on in that tractor. That I keep saying tractor, lawnmower. It's the things lawnmower. that would happen on that lawnmower. It's more extreme when it's a lawnmower. The tractor would probably make things a little easier. Yeah, so. I don't know why my brain thinks tractor. I it's do probably not because know. John Deere. John Deere it's is probably on the line of like lawnmowers, but also tractors. Probably speaking uh, of lawns, mm-hmm. chairs. Lawn chairs. Lawn chairs. We open up on, I don't know what the character's name is, but the the lady on the lawn chair eating what looked like Hostess Snowballs. Do you remember her name? Nope. Cool. Um, She's in two, maybe three scenes. Yes, and she is. she's chilling on the chair, and then she hears a crash and a fall, and later we find Alvin on the floor. Oh, she doesn't hear it. She, oh, she doesn't she hear left. it. We hear it. We, we hear, it. hear it. She yeah, leaves yeah. off for yeah. a moment and then comes back in order to put uh, more of that little, like, glimmering metal in front of her face while she is enjoying uh, some <laughs> yeah. sweets onto the yeah, side. Yeah, tanning out there on the lawn. Tanning out there. She says goodbye to Rose, who walks away, but she does not hear because yes. she's away at the time and of the sound of the crash. It's around then yes. we have the overall bar friends, if you will. Of Alvin, mm-hmm. which Alvin has stated he has not drank in so long, but he still he goes in for those, the atmosphere. Those, the friends called the chipmunks. This is where the Alvin s- and the chipmunks. Ha. Uh, <laughs> we have like one of them just sort of step out, and the way that the dialogue is paced, yep. it's it feels like that little almost like awkward so much thing that you see inside of like Lynch work. I would yeah, say. Yeah, it's it's whether or not you should be concerned or laughing. It's kind of in that awkward area until we get Rose coming in. Rose being Alvin's daughter, mm-hmm. played by Sissy Spacek. I believe that's how you say the name. I, I know I've seen her name credited before. I haven't gone through her filmography very much, but she is a rather notable award-winning actor. Um, she comes in as Rose, and immediately she's, like, super emotional. Oh, before that, like, we have to get the guy from the bar over to the house. Okay. Which, yes. Um, the first two people who see it are the neighbor who is brought in after uh, the crotchety old friend is just like, I didn't bash for your business, ba ba da ba ba And he just basically breaks into the house uh, in order to see Alvin is on the floor. That's what friends are for. Yes. Uh, there's two re- different reactions. Like, yeah, what the hell are you doing, Alvin? And it's like, oh, we got to help Alvin. Let's call 911. Don't do that. Uh, and it's like, oh, you better do ha 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 And to break up this dialogue, then, mm-hmm. yes, Rose does come in, who yes. is wondering, amongst all this panic, what the hell did you do to my dad? Yeah, He's on the ground. You you're do? looking down. Yeah. You're doing nothing about this. And, and at first, like, I was kind of taken aback because I, f- I forgot much of the movie. And I was like, ooh, that seemed like a really over-the-top, you know, line delivery. It seemed kind of dramatic. But then as we get to know Rose, like, no, that that's fitting of her character, what we established with her. Yes. But but at the time, I was just caught off guard, like, by how dramatic that was. Also, the camera movement, like, really zoomed in on her reaction as being dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um. But this gets undercut, like you said, by some of the silly elements of it, where at one point that uh, that lady who was, you know, tanning out there, you know, asks, what's the number for 911? As they're trying to figure out what to do with I mean, we've, we've done that inside of, like, what was it? I think it was, like, the Santa Claus? I don't remember is, the Santa Claus. This is not Claus. an uncommon joke for around the well, time. Well, maybe this one did it first. We don't know. We haven't done that, research. There was no kid to say, that's easy. It's 911. Yeah, there was no, there was no kid. Nope. That's one thing this movie has as a positive. There are no children. <laughs> there's, there's one. Is there? Like the hitchhiker seems to be That's, like a young woman who's okay. like away from family. I, I, I'm. There's no like child, child, there's, pre-adolescent child. 
Okay. Oh, yeah, there is. What? Later on inside the film, speaking of Rose, we have her overall sitting down because one thing that we do discover about the character is that she unfortunately lost her children. So as she's like taking time for herself that doesn't involve her father, she watches as this kid just picks up a ball from overall right. across the street. It's not even a named character. It's, not, it's just a kid. It's a kid in the film. Yeah, but the kid knew to stay outside the house where the kid belonged. <laughs> not in my movie. Not in my G-rated Disney family film does kids belong. It's a seven. 70 year old territory only. <laughs> and, um, um, yeah, yeah. Alvin doesn't want to go to the hospital. He, he very emphatically is just refusing, but he does promise his daughter to do so and ends up going there. And when we actually get to the hospital, I'm really struck. I was really struck by like the use of the natural lighting. Yeah. I don't understand it. Cause any hospital I've been to, it's like clearly lit inside. You've probably this place, been in larger hospitals though. This is like a single floor. You'll walk up a ramp in order to get inside. Most buildings, I guess, at least in my lifetime, you go inside them. They're not lit through like natural lighting let alone a hospital where like, again, usually the environment has that sort of sterile feel. This just has like a darkness to it, but not like an evil darkness, but just like it's, it's not fully lit. How close to like the smell? How, what's the smallest town you've been in? Uh, very small. Very I don't small? know exact population size, but <laughs> I have been to very, very small towns, professor. When you ha have, you ever been to like a single floor hospital before? I've been to towns that don't have hospitals. I don't think I've been in a town that had a hospital that's really small. <laughs> this is probably just one of those cases. Then, I, I'd I, say that have you been in one of those? I have been once. Was it lit? Was it lit? I I was a very, very small child around then. I do not trust this my This is why we don't there. let small children into our films because they don't even pay attention to lighting choices. <laughs> that's what, That kid out in the dark when he was rolling the ball, he probably didn't even know it was dark outside. He's a dumb little kid. Regardless, it's a very <laughs> it's a very different sort of like look to it, but it still adds to some one of the grainy feel of it. It feels like it is cut off, if you will, from what we experience from the outside, if you will. Something I, that's very nice, bright, shiny, while inside of here, it feels very closed in. It feels very I think that would have been sterile. stronger if it would have been the artificial lighting of like a hospital. I, I, I don't really care for the look of this this particular section of the film. Very well. I, I wasn't a huge fan of that. Um the, the doctor recommends that he starts using a walker, and he's like, nope, no walker, no walker. walker. He's like, well, okay, well, you should do some tests or x-rays. <laughs> What's a nope. walker? I don't know. Either way, he doesn't want it. Uh, no, instead, like, he opts in for two canes. It's not a walker. He's going for yeah. two canes. Not two cans. That'd canes. be a bird. Nope, it's two canes. canes. I know how to pronounce things, yes. Khalil. Okay, I don't. I say walker. <laughs> um, and the doctor, you know, tells him like, hey man, you gotta make some changes sooner. Things are gonna go bad real fast. And then Alvin just kind of looks at him with the moist eyes. And then later, uh, Alvin comes home, he lies to his daughter, and he I'm says like, yep, uh, doctor said I'll live to be 100, and he watches this lightning storm that happens uh, at night with his daughter, and we get this sort of rising music as she goes to the phone, or as my notes say, goes to the found. I don't know what that means, <laughs> the, the foundry? Um, and that's where we learn that the character of Uncle Lyle, uh, yes. his brother, had a stroke. Yes. And at that time, Alvin doesn't say anything. He's kind of just frozen in place, staring ahead straight, mm -hmm. like a story, mm -hmm. like a straight story. Like a straight story, like and an Alvin story. Later, Alvin, you know, announces, basically it's like his next line after that moment. He announces that he is going to be hitting the road and he needs to see Uncle Lyle. Yes. And the daughter objects, you know, hey, Uncle Lyle's like 300 miles away. Yeah, no, there are uh, specifically like about uh, four reasons why he can't go out there. It's because his eyes are bad. Lyle lives in Wisconsin. Your hips are bad and makes you make sounds like, ah. 
and uh, you're 73 years old. Yeah. Like the, the very valid reasons for not going on a large trekking no, adventure. No, those are all completely valid reasons. And, and if I knew the person, I would tell them don't do the same. I would do this for the same reasons. I would say don't do it. And also, I don't think they even mentioned the fact until way later, unless I just missed it. But I don't think they even mentioned at this point that he just doesn't have a driver's license. No, they do. They do? Okay, I just missed it then. But... And all the flurry of all the reasons he didn't go, I don't remember that one being brought up right away. Yeah, it's because of his bad uh, eyesight. That's why his oh, eyes are okay. bad, because he can't pass a driver's te uh, test in order to get a driver's license. Well, good thing you don't need that for a lawnmower. Nope, you, it's very hard to come at something very quickly with a lawnmower, which makes sense, but also still concerned for having yeah. this man on the road on the for six weeks. Road. Yeah, um, also the daughter goes to get some food for him during his long travels. Uh, the Braunschweiger, I hope I'm saying that correctly. A lot of food, including the Braunschweiger, of weird, like, focus and attention onto it. Another thing in which I think is like a David Lynch this, dice. This felt the most Lynchian scene to me, yeah. It's yeah. it's because it's the 50s music in the store, too. Yep. It's that sort of upbeat 50s music in the store while she's buying the sausage, and it's a very awkward conversation Yeah, because the like cashier is just kind of seeing all this sausage. She's insinuating that there's going to be a party. There's And, the, and, the, she's and Rose like, is just like, party? Oh, I love you parties. You having a party? I'm having a party. party, yeah. It's good. great time it's like no you're having the party because you have this ah oh, no my dad uh he's just like he's on a big trip or something yep. like that it's like i hate brunswicker and then they both make a face they both make a weird like uh a weird icky face at each yep. other uh and this is also after the cashier hears he's going to wisconsin he's like i hear that's a real party state it seems yeah that's which is a line, line that is said more than once in this movie yep it's a how wisconsin state. is a party state yep listener if you've been to wisconsin or are even a cheesehead yourself let us know if it really is a real party state. State, I could talk <laughs> over at the email, snakeeyedreams at gmail.com or the Twitter handle, snakeeyedreams1. The numeral one is in, it's been one while since I was the one to do this. I think usually Professor's <laughs> been the one plugging our info recently. I felt the words were alien <laughs> upon my lips as I said them. There's just been an absent amount of time. I've been, I'm the one advertising the podcast out here. I'm just trying to get yeah. like the word out here. You know, what's also, we're trying to get out there more hmm. the grabber because this was in the movie for a little bit. They made a big deal about getting this grabber. Again, I think the biggest point is that it's a slow paced scene in which there's no like uh extra like music nope. or anything. It's just entirely dialogue led. <laughs> and, and the Ace Hardware store employee just going, oh geez, Alvin, oh geez, oh, geez Alvin. that's a nice grabber. You know, those are hard to come by. Oh geez, Alvin, oh. I'll take it for five bucks. Ah, uh, 10. <laughs> yes. So this is something in which like they put so much attention on the grabber. I think what it does is that it, it implies overall Alvin's more so, yeah, like nature of uh, bartering, if you he, will. He does use the grabber to pick up some like wood for his fire at one point. Yep. But because we don't see every single night of those four weeks, we don't know how much he's using the grabber for things. Yeah. It's just kind of a thing that's introduced and shown a couple times, and then we move on from it. <laughs> I, I do like these little scenes, though, at the stores. they Again, they feel the most Lynchian, even if Lynch wasn't the writer. Yeah. Just because of the pacing. Yes. The, you know, they may not be in the script, but the pacing of it feels kind of like Lynch's pacing. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, when the daughter learns that Alvin is going to drive a riding lawnmower to Wisconsin, she at first argues against it. But Alvin's counterpoint, excellent counterpoint, is that he's got to see Lyle and he's got to make his journey on his own. And he's like, do you understand? And she's like, yeah, I guess I understand. The very vague sense, yes. It seems that he's got to make his journey on his own, which 
spoiler alert, somewhat seems to pay off, at least in the narrative, if yeah. you will, for the sake of just, like, showing, like, what lengths he's willing I mean, to go yeah, to. Yeah, the, the movie could have the tone that this is a stubborn man whose stubbornness has forced him into risky Everyone decisions. Everyone is saying that, too, throughout but the film. But it kind of feels like the film is saying, no, nah, Alvin was right. At least the way it feels to me is like Alvin was the hero and the other people were doubting him, but he was right the whole time. But I'm, I'm kind of with you, Professor, where I'm like, if this was, well, it was real life, but if it was my real life and this was someone I knew, I would also be warning them, don't do this. Yep, uh, Snake Eye Dreams does not want to uh, comply on the elements uh, that more so associate themselves with the elements that are seemingly being approved in this film, if yeah, you will. Yeah, it just um, seems like a really not smart series of decisions. There's multiple events that happen included that could get him still to where he needs to go more safely. Yeah. But it seems that this is him trying to prove himself to Lyle, if you right. will. Right, or to himself. It seems a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, if anything, mm. because it's almost as if the journey itself is to try to... Repair old wounds that won't be as simple as just, I'm here. It's it's also his stubbornness coming in as well. Very where, much so. Where he just won't relent once he has an idea in his head. Smart men talking to a stubborn man. Speaking of recurring motifs and ideas in the story, uh, Alvin, before he leaves, does guide his daughter to look up at the stars. And we get one of the uh, instances throughout the film of looking up at the sky. We got it at the beginning. We got it here with Rose. We're going to see it a couple more times. It seems like that, as far as I'm concerned, like, yeah, no, looking up at the stars is... Uh, big thing to do yeah. amongst like those who have the ability to do so not like caught with the saturation of natural electronic light it's a very beautiful thing to look upon speaking of beautiful things to look upon about 30 minutes into the film alvin leaves the town and the journey has commenced yep and he won't make it past the grotto they say as his friends kind of like yell towards his direction and what do you know he doesn't make it past the grotto. He does not. This was foreshadowing. Nope. He, his engine sputters out, and he ends up on the side of the road. He waves down a bus, boards over the grotto, and he returns to town a failure. Um, it, it, It's a fun little moment in which, like, as soon as he returns, the very next scene that we see him with is that he just goes up to the overall... The lawnmower takes his gun and just shoots it down. Yes, it's just sent into Mary an just ominously shows up with a gun and walks past his family <laughs> and then shoots the thing. It was the lawnmower's fault more than anything. Yes, the lawnmower had to be. It's, taken a, it's down. a fairly healthy way to take out your anger, <laughs> I suppose. Um, then he goes over to Big Ed Hurley himself, Everett McGill, playing the character of Tom, the uh, the salesperson for the mower, and you you recognized him. Yep. How what what about Everett McGill? Or Big Ed, what what did you recognize when you when you saw this person? Was Everything's the, basically the same. Okay, it's just like his style of dress, his style of dress, his face shape, his hair, uh, maybe a little bit more peppering in it, but basically it seems to be the same individual. He's playing a very similar role to what okay. he's been in before. So it's pretty quick to figure it out. Very easy. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> Stop putting me under this magnifying no, glass, no, Khalil. I mean, I have to. I literally, <laughs> no, I, I very much have to. Uh, and he hooks up album with the new lawnmower, a 66 John Deere. By new, I mean not new, like 30 years old, but new enough. New enough. Um, $325. And Tom was the previous owner, so you know it was in good hands. Yes. As he also, like says that he would talk him down, but he already knows that he, he's not going to win. And it's like Alvin. when he watches him leave, you, like, you can tell there's this tone of like, 
He's not sure what the old man's got planned up, but he also kind of smiles at it, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, again, the film is just kind of telling us, like, oh, man, that crazy old guy, isn't he good? Isn't this a good thing he's doing? Isn't this a little bit quirky? Isn't it? He's not like most other girls. Speaking of other girls, (laughs) new mower in tow, Alvin sets off for the open road, only to encounter on the road a hitchhiker. No. Dun, dun, dun! First boss of the game. And he passes. And he passes. He waves <laughs> he just, at her, and she just kind of stares at... I mean, to be fair, from her perspective, it is kind of weird to see. Kind of stares at him. And later that same night, she catches up to him where he's got the fire going. Yep. Says she could not find a ride. And he, as any gentleman would do, invites her to have some wieners. Do you want to rephrase that? To eat the dogs. Consume... The tubes of meat. He invites her for a meal. They're wieners. They are wieners. That's what he literally says. That he uses no, the word wiener. I know that they uses it inside of it, but for the this, they uses it. They use it. The darker elements we've been through for a lot of the podcast, and for those who have not seen the film, it's just a humble little thing in which he's mm-hmm. inviting her for a meal, if you will. They're called wieners. Those balonies have a first name. It's O S C A R. Maybe and, not. I don't know if they're brand name. And so they're brush, partaking brush finer, on this wiener, whatever their name is. Uh, partaking on this meal with a bit of sass shared between the two of them. Uh, it's just a little bit of a quiet moment as they mm-hmm. just settle for themselves for the night. As a little bit of dialogue begins to be picking up in which like they're starting to share each other's experiences. It's kind of the pattern that happens the whole movie for a lot of these encounters is... Alvin doles out some sort of generic advice about family. And then the person asks enough questions that we get more exposition about Alvin's backstory. And like as someone who's not completely sold on the movie, it just, it just kind of feels a little artificial as a storytelling mechanism where it just keeps happening. This is kind of the first major instance of it where she asks enough questions to find out, you know, about his wife, his wife delivered 14 babies and seven made it. And then his wife died in 1981 I'll get all the background information, and then he gives this advice about like the bundles of sticks wrapped together that we've all we've heard that advice probably before. And for those who may have not have, would you care to enlighten us a little bit more, Khalil? No. Oh, well, then I will. I it's won't. Where he, it's where like he would have like he would take care of some kids, and for those overall kids, because he's had a lot of kids, he's had like seven kids. Uh, he would tell them to break some sticks. Like everyone could easily break a single stick. Yeah. But when uh, it comes to like taking all the sticks into a bundle, putting them all together and trying to break them, none of them could because that's overall force itself. Those individual pieces put together, that's family. It's the idea of unbreakable bonds and so on. And I hate it. <laughs> I see where it's coming from. I do. I do get it. I, I find it uncompelling as an argument. Uh, although I do, I do understand its roots, but it's given a, given he doesn't really know her life circumstances, doesn't really know where she's been, it does feel a bit, I don't know what a word I'd use, but he, he kind of just assumes automatically that she should go back home. And obviously running away is probably not the healthiest opportunity. But when she says her family will hate her for this, what if she's right? What if her family's like straight up going to hate her? I don't think that means she should stick with them just because family makes you stronger. I'm always against that. Like I don't yeah. want unhealthy family relationships. Yeah. So when he kind of acts like he knows that she should go back to her family, 
I don't know that. Should she run away? No, she doesn't have a plan. She doesn't have an outcome. This is very risky behavior for her to be out alone like this. this for is- anyone, for him to be out alone like this, he's not anyone to talk. <laughs> but it's still an overall uh, situation where, for one, I think it's adding towards a narrative shorthand of like the wise old man and yeah. also just a way to just show that he might have more to think about uh, seeing as he's had this very heavy personal history with himself it's something in which is trying to give more information out for melvin but also on the same respects um again i do agree with you we don't know this person's personal life and these sort of situations can be heavily muddled with the mm-hmm. means of what dangers can lie yeah. with certain family dynamics i don't think that lynch has ever shied away from that no times either. no but when it comes down to it, this is also a young woman who has a pregnancy various months along that um, is currently all alone in the middle of the Midwest right. with no resources around yes. her. And as he states that instead of being out in the open like this and potentially dead because there might not always be old mans with wieners. Yep. Uh, Damn it. You're the one who said it this no, time. I realized it afterwards. There's not many pe- men who... There's not many people in general mm-hmm. who will be able to support and aid her that perhaps a bed at home will be more advantageous than the situation that she's putting herself and, in And now. yeah, again, to, to be clear, so, no, she's obviously not in a good spot right now. Yes. It's just the kind of assumption that she should go back to her family and that they'll understand, that's where I kind of feel like it's a lot to assume that for someone you don't know. And... I guess the way that I most like the scene, to, to put a positive on it, yeah. is if you read it in regards to this is Alvin self-reflecting, mm-hmm. that it's not necessarily advice he's giving to her so much as advice he tells himself because he's about to go reunite with his brother who he hasn't seen in who knows how many years. Mm-hmm. So when he's giving this whole speech about you know the unbreakable bonds of family, this is coming from a guy who's on his way to go try to repair one of those bonds that has been broken. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's entirely disingenuous because he is literally on this trek to try to do something similar himself. Yes. He isn't telling her, go return to family idly. He knows what it's like to have family and what it's like to be without them for years. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to see her lose her family connections the way that maybe he lost his brother connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Overall, what did you think of the hitchhiker section of the movie? Um, very simple, very quick, and as you had mentioned before, it seemed very heavy on its overall message whilst I still had a little bit of, like, that eking sense of, like, eh, I, I, I can't help but separate yeah. the ideas of the unknown being very important to any context, especially yeah. when it in comes the, in to In this film, this. it's very clearly implied that, because she she's there at the night and then then when he wakes up in the morning she's gone and instead there's the bundle of sticks so very clearly implying that yes she went home to her family she thought it over she agreed with him and it's implied to be a happy ending for her narrative her character Mm -hmm. um good stuff there i guess for, for that um we also do get through this conversation more information about rose where the film doesn't necessarily give a label for um exactly if rose has a certain condition um, with her speech and with her thinking. No, as far as what matters is more so Alvin's perspective on it. Yeah. And that she's someone who has a overall mind like a steel trap. She's great at overall retaining information. She's very great at that. Yes. Um, the biggest issue is that uh, people oftentimes don't see that because of the condition. And, and I think very realistically, it makes sense then also... Because again, it's all based on a true story, so I'm assuming this part is true as well. Is that Rose did lose custody of her children because one of them was badly burned in a fire while someone else was taking care of her kids, mm-hmm. and 
even though it was someone else at the time, it did get, you know, they were kind of looking at whether she was fit to have custody. Mm-hmm. And there was kind of some prejudice potentially about her conditions as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way he words it as being how she is. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think the movie is good and right in not getting too bogged down into terminology and sort of, you know, um, defining whatever condition this this might be for her. This terminology, uh, if there even is a specific thing. Yeah, the terminology isn't the point that matters. It's just more right. so of like what she's willing to do as far as her mm-hmm. overall like care and her own personal abilities are. And uh, as far as Alvin's overall take on it, she's very competent. On one hand, it would have been kind of nice for the you know, character to have been played by someone who maybe has a similar speech impediment and it's not Mm -hmm. an acting thing. Mm -hmm. That being said, that's not usually what happens in Hollywood. And I think that um, SpaceX here, she does a great job with the character. Yes. I I, I get, I get a hundred percent good intentions out of her portrayal. So I I think it's one of those examples of, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's someone kind of coming into that position and putting on that character, but I think doing it with respect, doing it with care. And I think doing a good job with it as well. Excellent. What do you think that thing is? R- randomly different topic. What do you think <laughs> that thing is that like Alvin parked in when it was raining? It was like a weird look. Okay, it looked like a house or a barn, right? But then it like is like a parking space. He like goes into it and it's just like an empty, hollowed out parking space. There's places that I've seen as while driving onto like the like Midwest, if you will. I've never like had someone explain to me while we were yeah. ever by them or anything like that. But I've seen places. Like, what is that this. called? I imagine that, but I, like I said, I've never had it explained yeah. or like reasoned with me on like what those were. But I think that overall the purpose is still the same in which like, if it's been hollowed out onto the inside yeah. and has a roof over it is likely some place to keep something dry, such as uh, important equipment that might be important for like tending to the, like the declaration fields. of independence from uh, national treasure. No, like equipment. Yeah, the equipment of the Constitution. No, it's like farm equipment. The farm Constitution. (laughs) Regardless, I don't know the purpose of it, but it still seems that he's able to keep himself out of the rain thanks to that with more trespassing, so... Fair enough. Fair (laughs) enough. Uh, There's a group of cyclists that at one point raced past Alvin. I don't think really much is said about that. It just kind of happens. Bunch of cyclists just sort of like come through, just a little bit of... um happenstance if you will as he's just like going on his venture he comes across all these people and it turns out he just follows them Mm -hmm. as well maybe someone invites him from the trail that we just don't see in the scene but regardless he makes it to them and everyone's applauding like hey man yeah it's a cool guy yeah Yeah, it's a cool thing and uh they start talking to him and you know one of them seems like a lot of them are young Uh, um many of them uh seem to be somewhat college age so they start talking about aging and getting old and uh, Alvin says that you shouldn't think about... Well, first he says, you don't think about getting old when you're young. And you then he should. adds, you shouldn't. And it's like, oh, I'm glad he added that you shouldn't because I feel like as someone who's in my 20s now, I feel like a lot of people who I know that are in my you know same age bracket do think about getting old quite a lot. I mean, I've seen people that with the moment they turn 20, they have midlife crisis of like, oh my God, what happened? Which some people could say, a controversial opinion from the professor here, is that when we're young, oftentimes the biggest thing is that like when you're 15, you're making a little like landmark for your whole entire life yeah. at that point. Just because you've got to get yourself ready for the point of college and beyond. Um, meanwhile, like there still has to be a portion where you're actually living while you're actually being young. Yeah. That's very, very important, I think. I, I just, I feel like it's very common for people to think about getting older when they're younger mm-hmm. in this current generation of people who are in their 20s now. Yes. Um, I don't know if that was the cultural climate in the 1990s. Mm. I, I don't know how much that's changed. I would I would wager, if anything, it's probably more a thing now because of sort of the 
I don't know if you call it a doomer generation, but the sort of <laughs> the sort of um, pessimism and concern and worry that exists within the climate of I think a lot of young people today, for whether substantiated, unsubstantiated, whatever reasons you think they may be, the continuing overall economic gaps. I think there's being... I think there's anxieties. Yes. I think there's anxieties in young people that may not have been there as much in the '90s. Maybe yeah. I'm generalizing here. Um, but then uh, you know he continues talking, and the cyclist is like, "Well, there's got to be something good about getting old." And that's where Alvin kind of says, well, basically at this point, he's seen all that life has to offer and he knows about letting the small stuff blow away. He says, the worst part about being old, though, is remembering when you were young. What do you think of that uh, advice, Professor? As Seeing as neither of us are 70s or 80s to comment on whether that is true <laughs> or not, do you think that the worst part about getting old is remembering when you were young? I think that's a fair assessment to say because the biggest thing that you'll have at that point is more so... Well, that's a generalization. These are all generalizations. A, a, a very big affect of when you have made yourself a history is that you have made so much be left behind that when you are starting to degrade in your years and you're starting to overall uh, understand your overall mortality, um, but because you're ever getting closer towards the end of it, mm -hmm. that reflection is going to just be a big thing, right. I would only imagine. So and I, I feel like it depends on whether you've lived with regrets or not. You know, I mean, that's the thing for Alvin saying this is that he has, we don't know his full life story, but I kind of get from the way he says that, that there may have been things that he wished he would have done differently when he was younger. Yeah. Uh, we do get experiences later talking about his time with the war and sort of the alcoholism that happened afterward and losing some of his family, disconnecting from some of his family. So I almost wonder in Alvin's case when he, you know, the hard parts remembering when you were young, maybe that's because he didn't live life fully that he may have wanted to. And there's that kind of maybe regret. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know exactly the tone to read that in um, for, for that particular part. And you know what, again, we, 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 you know, we say we're generalizing, but this movie also does like to dabble in generalizing. A lot of yeah. the advice here, I call it hackneyed, but a lot of the advice is very much like, I don't know, just vague pieces of wisdom, anecdotes, it, it, little... It, it, Again, Aphorisms. It's, it's aiding in trying to overall make him come off more wise as the time goes on. Also aids towards like his overall faults as a character. Yeah. Um, it's doing that. It's trying to do that with an overall means nuance. I know that whenever it comes to a film, we can always talk about how that's going. But as far as you and I go, we can talk about whatever we want for however long as in the podcast. So I'd like to make it clear when like the generalizing begins and ends. I'm going to specifically say we're hitting a deer next in the movie. <laughs> Along the road, one day, Alvin witnesses a car hit a deer. Um, I wasn't really a huge fan of the way the camera portrayed this, although I do understand maybe why it did. But the camera focused only on him during this and then, like, zoomed in dramatically during the crash that happened off screen. I, think I that, get the practicality. And I, I don't want animals hurt either, so I'm glad it wasn't an actual deer. Not, not just the practicality, but also I like the sense of, like, confusion that it also adds to it. Just because, like, when it happens, like, what? Did he run into someone at two miles per hour? I, I think that the way it was confusing wasn't a good type of confusion. I think it was just <laughs> poorly communicated. Okay. I thought it just wasn't very clear okay. uh, rather than being ambiguous uh, as, as a good thing. But uh, anyway, Alvin, Alvin stops his lawnmower and then you know, asks if he can help her, the yeah. driver. And we get probably the weirdest part of the entire movie through this conversation where this person goes off on a tangent about how no one can help her. And she's like borderline screaming and yelling at this in the mm -hmm. middle of the road with this deer there. Mm-hmm. She said she's tried driving with her lights on, tried sounding her horn, tried screaming out the window or banging on the side of the door or playing public enemy real loud. Okay, I like the public enemy joke. <laughs> Has She's prayed to St. Francis of Assisi and St. Christopher too, but she keeps hitting 
deer. Every week she plows into at least one deer. She has hit 13 deer in seven weeks. And she talks about how she has to go drive this road 40 miles back and forth to work every day. She has to take this road and she's just crying about it, staring off the distance. Where do they come from? The deer. <laughs> and she's weeping. And it's like, I, I get it, but I'm also just like, the, the reason I guess this reads as comedy, and I don't know the real, again, the real instance of what this is based on, but that's an insane amount of deer to keep hitting. Yeah. Like, I, as someone, again, who's driven around deer areas and deer, deer country for many miles back and forth on a daily basis, and I don't hit deer, and I haven't <laughs> hit deer in those situations, it's, I, I acknowledge that once in a while a deer collision can happen, maybe once a year. Yeah. If you're averaging, like, one a week or more... I don't know what you're doing. Then the follow-up question I have for you is like, what do you think that the scene just overall does? Just that, that's general. one of the questions I, it's literally the end of my notes here on this one. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Why does this scene exist? Because most of the scenes in this movie are pretty like clear in what they're trying to communicate. Yeah. This one's really weird. He doesn't have any advice for her. He doesn't have any solutions for her problems. Mm -hmm. She just kind of freaks out about this. She goes and touches the deer and announces it's dead. I, I, I thought it'd be funny. What if the deer came back to life and like attacked at that moment, uh -huh. but the deer, cause you, you generally want to be careful with animals and wildlife when they're could be dead Absolutely. because you go touch it. It could spring back to life and like headbutt you. Yes. Like actually not joking. That's a bad thing to do, but she just kind of casually touches it. And she's like, he's dead. And I love deer. And then there's like this weird music cue that almost feels like comedy. She gets in her car, drives on leaving the deer in the middle of the road. And then um, Alvin cooks it up for food. Hmm. So I don't know exactly what to take from this. I mean, there's kind of this idea of, unfortunate coincidence, not coincidence, but unfortunate um, repetitious like failure or problems running into a roadblock, having to like encounter problems with having no way around them. Um, I guess one person's problems, another person's supper. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what the messaging of this really is. It feels like the most mm -hmm. random scene in here. This feels mm -hmm. like a deleted scene to be honest, because it doesn't matter for anything hardly afterward either. For the biggest part that I would have to say for the just general stress that this person is under, for the fact that she's got to drive so far and drive back, if you will, it's uh seems to be like one of those like hyperbole situations that we just sometimes see in film in general, but I still think that sometimes we also see in some of other Lynch's work where like mm -hmm. someone is taken to an extreme on like how many times the accidents have to go through, but there's enough of a sympathy angle from those who are experienced in their own personal life, mm -hmm. potentially uh, living in the Midwest who are also watching this film, if you will. It's that weird point again with tragedy and also just the general humor of the extremity yeah. that we're just seeing in this small moment, if you will, being relatable while at the same time being wild. It's a memorable scene, but I don't think it adds much to the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's just kind of quirky and weird. It's not like most other girls, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the scene. Sure, Khalil. Sure. We'll go with that. Um, you know what else is also unusual for girls? Me. When they rocket down the hill faster and faster and faster and start malfunctioning. So that might be a sign that you need to go and you... make sure that your girl is okay. Or if you're the girl that you're okay if you're rocketing down the hill. I, Your engine might have problems. Let us not compare women to lawnmowers. Okay, fine. I think that's fair. If you are a man and you start sputtering and rocketing down the hill, you should also get your engine checked out. Is that better, <laughs> Professor? I don't know. 
Anyway, if, any, if anyone wants to think that my comparison of a lawnmower not being like most other girls is in some way a, a, a serious claim in any single way, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I just keep hitting deer every single day and I have to take this road. Uh, Continuing down the road, we see Alvin. <laughs> Speaking of things burning down, there's a house. There's a house that's being burnt down. A few people are actually watching it as if it's a spectacle because it was an eyesore, et cetera, et cetera. Ha ha. <laughs> Something horn sounds. What? And okay. He makes horn sounds like that little sad one, like mm. uh, salute to yep, it as yep. it like, goes down. But yeah. Um, burr, burr, burr. Al- yeah, that one. Yeah. Alvin rockets down the overall hill because it is way too steep and there's no brakes. I do like the way this part shot. Like very like first person kind of rocketing down the road. I think it captures like the anxieties and like frantic nature and panic that he's experiencing at that moment. Yeah. So I think that was well shot and well communicated. No, I think that again, we've seen similar shots like this inside the past. And I think that does well to do exactly what emotions should be going through in this case that you are on a lawnmower with over like, probably a hundred pounds of equipment right mm-hmm. behind you because it's wood, it's metal, and it's also tires. Yeah, you're also 80 years you. old. Yep. Uh, uh, hey, excuse me, mid-70s. Mid-70s, years old. And you are going downhill, and uh, this is not good. Uh, many people who do approach him afterwards because his belt mm-hmm. has been blown out as well as a few other things with his uh, lawnmower is trying to say, this is not a good idea. You're going to go through many more hills like this. It's Do okay, not. though. It's okay, though. He was right, so it doesn't matter. Um, this this guy who happens to be over there worked for John Deere for 30 years. Um, so he happens to find someone who just very conveniently can help him with this sort of problem. Mm-hmm. But he says he won't be going anywhere tonight, you know, with this situation. And um, this is where we again find out that he's been driving for five weeks at this point. Um, I really didn't like the rapid fade out to black, by the way, that ended the scene. It was kind of a weird edit that I, I thought felt kind of kind of rushed, kind of sloppy. I don't always sure? like some of the scene changes and, and endings and edits I've noticed in in this movie and Wild at Heart a little bit. Okay, um, Lost Highway, I had no I had no transition problems. I don't I don't know what the difference was, but <laughs> but this one kind of has that issue again for me. Um, we get a few more scenes of his day and night. He calls his daughter Rose, asks for her to send him his social security check. Um, they estimate that's going to cost around two hundred fifty dollars to get the lawnmower fixed, and the man there. Right, he offers to drive him the rest of the way. He says that he would be fine helping him go the rest of the way, but Alvin uh-huh. says he has to finish this one his own way. Okay. Which prompted me to think about this movie and be like, well, what is, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Like, what if Alvin got there his stubborn way and then he got there and, like, his his brother died? And the only reason he didn't get to see him is because he went on the lawnmower. And I'm like... That's kind of the situation that this is, though, right? He's already spent five weeks, and he still has more hilly areas to go, which are going to be harder to get through. Yep. He could break down more often, delaying it further. He kind of needed to be there for his brother right away. He's going to be there, like, two months later. And it's just, I don't know. I was thinking about this, like, how different this movie's tone would be if he got there, and it's like, yeah, um, you're about three weeks late. But uh, thankfully, that's not the case. Nope. But it is. This is where again I kind of go back to like, let the man drive you. You've made your point. You've gone this far. 
Alvin, I know you're supposed he's, to be inspirational right now, but you've gone this he's far. Got, he's too busy trying to make sure that his social security checks can be mailed to him so he can afford to take the rest of this journey. I think it's interesting because it is based on a real story and because it does have the ending that happened in real life is that it is obviously treated as a positive thing that he took the lawnmower. It's the inspirational, cool story. Yeah. But it's also just like... This could have gone badly for him or for the that's, other person. But that's every single inspiration in the little story. Clue. Yeah. Like all sorts of Air things. Bud, could have been. Air Bud could have gone totally differently. <laughs> it could have gone totally differently. But to, to be completely honest, like there's all sorts of like yeah. inspiring tales that are supposed to inspire people and get them ready for their own adventures because we don't want too many adventure stories in which everyone fails at the end and then they're told, okay, don't follow your dreams or think that you have to do what you have to do because at the end of the day, you might die on the road. This that's why, rarely I, ever This a is film. why I don't like those kinds of stories very much. <laughs> probably is because my cynical side is just over here being like, this is a series of poor decisions, <laughs> poor decisions that happen to work out. Yes. But like he should have taken the offer to get a drive over there. <laughs> the, the money it cost him to repair the lawnmower. He could have paid the person to drive him and it would have been fine. But he had to prove, himself. but he had to prove himself again. The stubbornness would be a sin if it wasn't a positive <laughs> trait here. Like it would be his <laughs> vice. But instead, they do treat it as a as a virtue almost. But it's like a vice, and it ties him to his overall goals. Like mm -hmm. he, he's yeah. ready to go. That kind and of he, yeah. yeah. Anyway, the best <laughs> scene in the entire movie, like hands down, not even close. I won't even humor your disagreement. Is the conversation that Alvin has at the bar with the other veteran? Best part of the movie. You won't humor me otherwise, so I'm just gonna. What say do you go think? I mean, this is where I'm. It's I'm, a very good scene. Is it your favorite scene? I. It's, Do you like any scenes more? This scene does, for me personally, being someone who is not a war veteran, mm -hmm. uh, who has not seen war himself, um, that this scene is very similar towards the other scenes, if you will. But the biggest part about it that emphasizes it above those other like mm -hmm. emotional scenes is that this is the most emotional that we get out of that. I don't think it tries to wrap it up with an easy resolution. It doesn't. And it doesn't feel as random as the deer one. So it feels real, but not like flinching away from that realness. So yes. this is kind of the one that I have the most respect for and I think has the most like meaning to it for me. Yes. I, I also am not a veteran. I also have not gone to war, um, you know, and I don't know how true this rings to those who have. But uh, I, I personally think I think it's the best scene in the movie. And since you dodged my question, I'm going to assume that there I, are no scenes you enjoy more. I do enjoy other scenes more, but more ah. so from my personal take. I've told you before, for me, um, I enjoy films on what fun qualities that they can bring to the table because fun is the biggest emphasis I have. Even at the most flawed scene, my more favorite scenes tend to be and my more favorite films you know, tend to be. Professor, you imply that I don't like fun. fun. No, no. You're I'm implying saying, that like, I'm unlike you. That you probably have a more sort of like measured opinion on things based off of a more emotional pool. And I think that's valid. I think that I go for scenes such as the grabber and that would probably be my Is favorite, your favorite scene. Like in a movie like Titanic, the most fun scene of the Titanic. You know, I haven't seen Titanic, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. I feel like there's other emotions to there's feel. There's other emotions to feel, but I still have a favorite one. I'm uh, sorry if I love that the peanut butter of the overall product I still seek out like everything that has peanut butter in it. Okay, fun is peanut butter. What are other emotions in terms of the, the treats? Like what? What? It, what it's like, like a it. box of chocolates, or what is this? Um, because they say life is like a box of chocolates. Life is like a box of chocolates. Sure, whatever, <laughs> whatever that means. What's your favorite scene in Forrest Gump? I don't recall Forrest Gump all that. That's well. okay. That's a fair. That's a fair stance, actually. <laughs> it's pretty middling. 
fight me. The biggest thing I remember from Forrest Gump is that uh, there's a shrimp company. There is a there's a shrimp. That yep. I can see when I ever I go to Mall of America and the food's okay. Food's okay. Yeah. Just like the movie. Okay. <laughs> solid solid okay. Um. Anyway, so the scene happens. Uh, the the guy's drinking at the bar and uh, Alvin gets milk. He talks about how he used to be hooked on drinking and the pastor helped him see that his drinking was due to his war trauma. Mm. And um, after the other guy recounts a pretty horrible war story, Alvin remarks, quote, that is one thing I can't shake loose. All my buddies' faces are still young. And the thing is, the more years I have, the more they've lost. And it's not always buddies' faces I see. Sometimes it's German faces. Near the end, we were shooting moon-faced boys. Um, and Alvin goes on to explain kind of the story about how he had, uh, you know, been growing up, how to learn how to shoot to hunt. But then when he got to the war, he was apparently a very good shot and he was put as a sniper out in the front lines. Mm -hmm. And there was a situation that happened where he ended up hearing and seeing some movement, well, more, he more seeing cause he was far away, but seeing movement and rustling in the trees and taking a shot, assuming that that was a Nazi because it was across the enemy lines. But it turns out that it actually been one of his war buds, Cots, who had been returning um, from the enemy lines as an ally, and this resulted in Alvin shooting him. And for everyone else who was kind of there afterward hearing about this, they assumed that Cots had been shot down by a German sniper over enemy territory, and Alvin alone knew that he had, in fact, been the one to shoot him and kind of carried that guilt alone because he couldn't really tell anyone that. Mm -hmm. he, he couldn't say anything. Um, again, I find that to be much more emotionally affecting as a situation and much more real and much more raw and much more serious than a lot of the things that are said in this movie where there is no easy answer to that sort of problem. Like, what do, what do you say to that? There was no thing to say. Mm -hmm. It's just two people kind of commiserating. And there's a, there's a part in there early on where they talk about how you can see it in someone's eyes or face if they've been through the war. And mm -hmm. I think it's really telling, though, that you know, Alvin says that and the other guy just kind of nods, like, knowingly, like, he could probably tell it in Alvin. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of this, you know, they can communicate it just by the way they look at each other, but they don't have the words really to resolve those feelings. Mm -hmm. There is no resolving it. Um, I find that quite compelling. For a movie that otherwise I don't find that compelling. <laughs> I think this is, is just a rare, a rare scene. moment that I was like, oh, it's that's, an, that's some interesting stuff there. It's heavily compelling because we're getting into the, the very deepest nature of at least the character of Alvin Strait. Yeah, I think it does a good job elevating uh, elements of his psyche too and and kind of where that shows where his drinking came from. We can start filling in the blanks about his stubbornness, his kind of emotional reclusiveness, how he might have gotten strained with his brother. A lot of things start to fall into place with conversations like that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like some of them, like I said, kind of feel like we're getting to point A to point B using exposition. Like character shows up, you know, Alvin gives advice and then we find more information about Alvin through their questioning. This one just feels a bit different, I guess, because it doesn't feel like it's just trying to get from point A to point B in the, the exposition narrative. I think it more smoothly and more naturally gives us information about his character yeah. without it just feeling like an exposition dump, mm -hmm. uh, at, le at least it, for me. It seems like a natural place to have a conversation with, especially whenever yeah. it comes to someone you can relate with immediately. I really didn't care for a lot of the rest of his time in this sort of town. I don't know if the town name is ever said, but this town where he uh, his, his his lawnmower broken down and was getting repaired. There's not much time that's really spent beyond it. Eventually, there is a point where there are the two brother mechanics. We get the twins. Yep. Yep. 
and they repair it. They have some overall bantery dialogue, and that's when Alvin barters things down. And the inspirational music kicks in, and Alvin is like a brother is still a brother, and I'm just like, shut up. I get it. I get it, Alvin. I get it. This is when Khalil actually is inside the film to yell at them for this yes, exact reason. Yes, I show up. It's, mm-hmm. it's awful. Um and then they eventually, you know, eventually he sets out again. He goes to this sort of cemetery area around the south side of like maybe like a monastery or like a church or yeah. something. And um, he's he's over there eating again without permission, just kind of chilling out there. And uh, the 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 priest shows up and Alvin's like, hey, I hope you don't mind me trespassing. And the guy's like, that's ah, fine. <laughs> he picked a pretty good spot to trespass. And uh, they start talking, and the priest finds out he's here to see Lloyd straight. It turns out he actually knows Lloyd, yeah. says he went to his parish. Alvin's yeah. like, but he's a Baptist. And he's like, yep, he told me that. He told me a lot of things. He didn't mention having a brother, though. Yep. Uh, at which point, again, we get more information. Alvin says that neither one of them would have said they had a brother for quite some time. They grew up close together on a farm in Moorhead, Minnesota, as brothers. They'd sleep outdoors in the summer, talk about the stars, places they wanted to go, etc., and he said, quote, it made our trials seem smaller. We pretty much talked each other through growing up. But as time went on, this became more of a Cain and Abel situation. As In Alvin he himself and killed his brother yeah, with a rock. Yeah, you can't just say the Cain and Abel thing to a priest. You're just admitting to murder, <laughs> Alvin. Uh, but he says, anger, vanity, you mix that together with liquor, and you've got two brothers who haven't spoken in 10 years. Whatever it was that made me and Lyle so mad, it doesn't matter anymore. I want to make peace. I want to sit with him, look at the stars like we used to do so long ago. I just want to bring up again, as we are getting ever closer to the very end of this film, and especially post-cemetery dinner, post the overall Mm -hmm. conversation of war, post this person who was having issues, especially with her teenage pregnancy. This is still under the banner of Disney. Yes. This is, I don't know how many Disney films that behave like this. Yeah. If you will. This feels very different. For it does. It, it really does. And I don't watch a lot of the live action family films of Disney, but most yeah. of them are marketed more toward kids. Mm-hmm. This film does not allow kids to exist. It has one child in the darkness playing alone silently, and that's all there is. This, mo- for the most part, is not targeted at kids. I still think that there's like a family target for this. There's a family generally. target, but I also think as a kid, I would have hated this. <laughs> I would have been born out of bo- born. I would have been born yeah, out of my mind as they were playing like a Greek the film. god. I would have birthed myself <laughs> out of my own brain <laughs> out of just boredom. Uh, but no, I would have hated this because it wouldn't have had anything I'm interested in. And it uh, doesn't have usually any of the hooks that you would keep a kid interested. The kid would be like, I'd be over there drawing crayon on the walls by this point. And as far as I'm concerned, this is one of those films in which I can see coming out every like year or so, if you will, in inspirational stories. Someone kind of goes through um, a very par trial and yeah. tribulations. It's based on a true story. And again, it's something that you either A, bring the family to or B, put in the background while families around. And, and if someone does get that kind of value out of this movie, like all the power to them, that's great. Uh, it's kind of a, a unique tradition to watch it every year. If it helps you out, cool. I just don't get any of that out of the movie. So it's kind of hard for me to fully empathize, even if I'm like, yeah, man, that's good that you have that connection with this movie. And mm-hmm. there's not a lot of outright bad messaging in this movie either. It's generally pretty wholesome, neutral stuff. Yeah. I, I don't have any you know, major gripes. It's not a bad message by any means. I'm just, it just doesn't work for me. And I'm only interested in me. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> We're at the end of the movie. 
And the best part, because it's over soon. I, no, no. It's, no. It's, it is a pretty good part, though. It's a really good part. Um, it's where we eventually get towards the end of the road. It's almost there. Like, we stop by a bar for a bit uh, for yeah. Alvin to have his first drink in so, so long. A Miller's Light. Miller's Light. And it's the only drink that he'll really need in this overall encounter. What do you think of his decision to get a Miller's Light before seeing his brother? Something, something, uh, the king of beers, Heineken. Um, I'm just, well, I mean, just in yourself. general, like he has a drink. What do you think of his choice to Blue have a drink ribbons. before seeing his brother again? Um, I think that it's a personal reward for himself yeah. and almost like an end of uh, personal forgiveness for himself. Perhaps so. So, yeah, no, I, I, I think it's just for him. If you will love this is for him. So the, the real Miller's Light were the friends he made along the way. No. Oh, never mind. Absolutely not. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, he gets directions to Lyle's place. He eventually gets there after being redirected and slowly traveling there. Yep. In a scene that sequence that felt way too long to me. I just wanted him to get to the brother's place. <laughs> and not because of like I was on the edge of my seat wanting to see what happens. I'm just like, all right. It's an hour and 45 minutes into this movie. Let's get going. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. But he gets stopped. He ends up being stuck there for a bit. There's someone who passes by, talks to him. is like, hey, why don't you try the engine again? He tries it again. Or goes back on. Yeah, I just, I find a lot of this stuff doesn't really add to the film for me. It's just padding. It, it, it's doing, like, what's happened in the film. And to be completely honest, like, there is a moment inside of it that aids in the tenseness if you don't know the story as is. In mm -hmm. which, like, does he get, like, far enough? It, like, is this truly yeah. the end of the road? That's fair. Um, But, yeah. We eventually do actually get there, and the scene itself is complex, and I like. I think it's pretty good. Um, Lyle, the brother, is played by Harry Dean Stanton, who we have seen previously in Firewalk with Me and Wild at Heart. And while this is a very small part of the film, it's only a few minutes long. I do think that maybe Harry Dean Stanton gets the best performance in the whole movie. <laughs> like, I nothing not to say anything about about what Alvin's doing because obviously he's like the focus of the whole entire thing. Yeah. But I actually I really quite buy into what Harry Dean Stanton's doing with his body language as the brother. To also note, like this brother's living in a shack in the middle of nowhere, what seems to be potentially all alone. Yeah, pretty lonesome. meager means by the judge of the house estate. His overall, uh, he's actually holding the overall like walker if mm -hmm. you will as opposed towards his brother who's holding two canes something yeah. in which is emphasizing someone who might be submitting more to what's happening to him as opposed towards someone who is still stubborn in like how yep. he's being treated and they just sort of look at each other for a while before uh he begins making the obvious questions like, like yeah you went all this way in a lawnmower just to see me sort of questions yeah and i and i again i'm really sold on stanton's um performance reacting to this because he doesn't really say a lot. Mm -hmm. He's just kind of like, um, you know, he gets teary eyed kind of choked up. And I, and I think the emotion feels real. Yeah. I, the, I really give a lot of credit to Stanton for this very small role that I think he, he elevates a lot. The conversation doesn't really continue from there. It's just that they just sort of like sit there, look up into the sky for a bit. And they're just like taking each other's company, which by the way, another thing that I gleaned from just like mm -hmm. not even, I wouldn't, I would generously call this research if I was being absolutely Mother Teresa levels of generous to myself. I looked at a quick Wikipedia page. Yeah. And uh, from what I understand is that eventually, like, his brother actually moves in with him. They're, I would expect the ending to be something like that, in which, like, they're getting to know each other. They're super mm -hmm. happy and all. But no, instead, it just ends on them just being around each other. The journey no, has No, it was ended, a perfect ending. And it stops there. It was, and I it was like, a perfect I, ending. I really to, like this. To just go quietly up to the stars and to trust the audience is going to get it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, to trust the audience is paying enough attention to understand the importance of just looking up at the stars that just because he wanted to meet his brother so badly doesn't mean he has a lot really even to say. It's not about the words. It's about just that spending that time together, the togetherness, mm-hmm. and how much value he put on looking up at the stars with his brother when they were kids. Yes. And being able to re-experience that again. So I, I think that the ending shows a great deal of confidence and strength in the audience. And I think that from an artistic standpoint, I, I don't think you could end the movie better. And this is, this is kind of, you know, going back to overall thoughts here for a moment. It's, I may not love this movie. I may find it quite boring. I may find certain elements kind of whatever, but I don't know how you'd make this movie much better if it's still going to be the same story. I kind of feel like this, the problem for me is the story's not enough to make it work for an hour, an hour and 50 minutes. But if you were to remake this movie, I don't know what you'd really change. I think that the performances, the, the execution on most of these things here are very good. It's just not my kind of movie. Yes. But I do think it is very well. And again, it's the perfect way to end this film. Is there anything you would change about this movie? Not really. I think that as far as a substance of a film of just like letting a person take his own personal journey, it seems like a lot of the overall steps just made sense. If anything, there might be just like filler moments that I'd either shorten or work on or just completely Mm -hmm. cut. Say, for example, the deer moment. Uh, But beyond that, no, I think that, does everything what this type of film would ever try to do mm-hmm. and it does it good job <laughs> yeah a couple quick shout outs um angelo bottle menti score like i said i really think it's <laughs> not what- to, no quick shout out to the score not angelo bottle menti who made the score just the score itself <laughs> good job there score good job. You series of notes you did it you made it good job angelo bottle menti <laughs> um no i i think it's uh, i think it's good got some beautiful strings very like wistful but hopeful kind of vibes. Yeah, I like the soundtrack a lot. I think it's of the bottle of empty soundtracks. I could see myself listening to this one like just on its own. Yes, but I don't like always how it's used in the film to kind of fill in these inspirational moments with inspirational music. Uh-huh. But that's not against the score itself. I think that it's just the using of it. That's already like something done in any work in general. We've yeah. seen moments of that, not necessarily inspirational, but the um, inquiry music being used at inquiry points through something like, say, for example, Twin Peaks. It's just I, a common Yeah, thing. it's a common thing. I just, it depends on whether I find it egregious or not. I think yeah. this film, it's a little egregious at Fair. some points for me. Okay. But it's also, I'm more likely to object to it when it comes to, that sort of inspirational music. I also really hate it with sad music. Whenever a movie like has a sad moment and then the piano starts coming in, I'm like rolling my eyes. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there's certain things I'm more adverse to. You know, Audrey steps into a room and Audrey's theme starts playing. I don't mind that necessarily. <laughs> um, but that's because Twin Peaks is doing something a little different there. But um, no, I think the soundtrack on its own, very, very good. Maybe one of Battle Lamenti's best. Okay. Um, my opinion. Um, and then also uh, Freddie Francis's cinematography, the vast landscapes, the sky shots, the star shots. Yeah. I think it looks very good. I agree. Um, those are probably the two things from the, the aesthetic standpoint that I'm most uh, most pleased it, with. It's one of those like overall uh, scopes and shots that you would see that is making an emphasis for the place. Mm -hmm. Uh, that you could almost see it as an advertisement for the Midwest, if you will. Uh, Very similar to how some places like, say, for example, for one random reason or another, Oregon might uh, advertise itself, uh, if you will, maybe slightly exaggerating certain elements, but more so emphasizing uh, the beauties of nature that can come from it all. Similarly, it was a very animated response to this movie from the <laughs> box office, and by that I mean not at all. This movie made $6 million in North America on a $10 million budget. 
It was not a financial success. I don't know if I'd call it like a total failure um, because when you when you factor in other places, it, it broke even probably. Yeah. But it was not a big win the same way that um, Lost Highway was not a big win the same way that I don't think uh, Fire Walk With Me was a big win. There's been a lot of movies that haven't made Lynch a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, he's not really making the bank. Nope. Um, and critically, it's been all over the place. We've talked about with different films. This one has been generally liked by audiences. But it was a quieter release in the yeah. year 1999. Uh, for context, 1999 was the year that Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace came out. Ah. It's also the year that The Sixth Sense came out, uh -huh. Toy Story 2, The Matrix, Tarzan, and The Mummy. Now, obviously, every year's <laughs> got their big releases. But if you're making a family film and you're trying to compete in that particular year... Good with luck. other movies you might take a family to go to... Good luck. And your target audience is 70-year-old war veterans... Good luck. Yeah. So it was not a very easy movie to market, probably. And I don't think Disney necessarily marketed it the clearest. No. Um, with it being on Disney+, Plus, I think more people have kind of rediscovered it, or people are kind of looking back on it. And it does generally get good reviews. Okay. Um, it was uh, the highest user-rated Disney movie on IMDb yeah. until 2020 when Hamilton came on. Mm. But prior to Hamilton, it was the highest-reviewed movie on Disney+. Plus. Okay. So, which is, again... Kind of remarkable, highest user-rated Disney movie, which is kind of remarkable considering what Disney has. Yeah. Disney has all of their animated films. Uh, that's crazy. Entertainment Weekly described the film as a, quote, celestial piece of Americana. I mean, it is celestial. There are stars. I, I agree with that wordplay that is happening there. It is American. There are stars. Ah. Chicago Tribune <laughs> wrote of the film, quote, we see something American studios usually don't give us. The simple, unsentimentalized beauty of the rural American Midwestern landscape. I think it is pretty sentimentalized. I, I, I wouldn't call this movie unsentimental. Um, but it is, it is beautiful, rural American Midwestern landscape. Agree, Chicago. I agree. You, you agree. You agree with Chicago. On Good. the review aggregator website Rotten Tomatoes, the film has an approval rating of 95% based on 103 reviews with an average rating of 8.17 out of 10. The website's critical consensus reads, quote, with strong performances and director David Lynch at the helm, the straight story steers past sentimental byways on its ambling journey across the American heartland. <gasps> it is sentimental. Stop telling me it's not. First <laughs> Chicago and now you're Tomato. Literally, you're literally going through like a series of reviews. I'm sorry, but for each individual review, they will likely say very similar things about it. Because let's just face it, there's a lot that's not really offensive as far as this film goes. It does It is show. sentimental though. Like, it is very sentimental, yes. But it's not as if like everyone as a council gets together from all timelines and says, all right, here's what we're going to say about the film. To personally annoy you, Khalil. It feels no, like they have. You, it feels like they really no, have. No, I think that's just how you're researching it. So why don't we go ahead and go to a place where you might not see any sort of those words. Why don't we, why don't we go see Ebert, huh? Why don't we go see Ebert? Because I know that you want to talk about Ebert because you even said at the beginning of this that you wanted to bring up Ebert again for some reason every time Ebert lets go. I was going to mention Metacritic first. No, um, we're going Ebert. Met Metacritic, the film has a score of 86 out of 100. Based I guess on 30. they also say something sentimental, don't they? No, it just says indicating universal acclaim. Cool. Probably sentimental. Shh, nice. Roger Ebert. Thank you. What do you think he gave the film? Give me a prediction. What do you think he gave this movie? What? Do they gave up? Like, yes. oh yeah, he's got like four stars. Well, yeah, out of, out of stars, what does he give it? One and a half. One and a half? One and a half. Four out of four. 
perfect Ooh. rating. Excuse me. Loves this film. Excuse me. This was his first positive review he had ever given a David Lynch film. Why? Four out of four stars. The way that you smile at me while you're He would have told this. you this is his favorite David Lynch movie at this point. Is there any words that you like to speak out loud? Yes. Or is it just like four stars? Yes. Is it finally enough for a palette for our dear Ebert? Quote, because the film was directed by David Lynch, who usually deals in the bazaar, we kept waiting for the other shoe to drop, for Alvin's odyssey to intersect with the Twilight Zone. But it never does. Even when he encounters a potential weirdo, like the distraught woman whose car has killed 14 deer in one week on the same stretch of highway. She's not a sideshow exhibit, and we think, yeah, you can hit a lot of deer on those country roads. Continuing, quote, The cinematographer, Freddie Francis, who once made the vastness of Utah a backdrop for the Executioner's song, knows how to evoke a landscape without making it too comforting. There are fields of waving corn and grain here and rivers of woods and little beds of bar- or little bed barns, but on the soundtrack, the wind whispering in the trees, he said the words, mm-hmm. the wind whispering in the trees plays a sad and lonely song, not Laura Palmer specifically, and we are reminded not of the fields we drive past on our way to picnics, but on our way to funerals, on autumn days when the roads are empty. By the way, side note, I'm not really a big fan of the reviews where it's like, we... I don't, I don't think he's referring to Siskel. I think he's just saying like, we, the universal we, and it's like, we are reminded of funerals when we look at the fields of this movie. I wasn't, am I not part of the we club? I guess you're not part of the we club. Come on, Raj. So yeah, Roger Ebert, um, four out of four stars. Any particular thoughts that this was like the Lynch movie that he really, really liked? Four out of four. Yeah. Perfect rating. Perfect rating. Yeah. It's a perfect movie. This is a perfect movie for him. I think that from what I'm understanding from the words, if those are the only words that were really given. No, forward, there's more of a review. I just took a couple key quotes. It seems like for the quotes that you've already given from the key quotes, if you will, uh, seems to be heavily emphasized almost in the aesthetic of the film. He has no negative to say about the film whatsoever. I think he praised the performances, the cinematography, the music, maybe some of the directing choices. Okay. I don't know if the story was a big thing for him. I read the review. I just don't remember him necessarily. <laughs> Nothing he said was like, I'm going to quote that in the podcast type of material. I I'm guess. glad he got everything that he would want out of this film. What's more to say? What's more to say? Well, I'm going to tell you that this film was nominated for the Palme d'Or at the 1999 Cannes Film Festival. Whoa. Neat. Yeah. It didn't win like Wild at Heart did, but it was nominated. It was nominated. Richard Farnsworth earned an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor for his portrayal of Alvin Strait, and for 20 years, he held the record for the oldest person at age 79 to be nominated for Best Actor Award, until Oscar specifically, until 2021, just this last year, when Anthony Hopkins was nominated at the age of 83 for his role in the film The Father. Mm. Good movie, by the way. I've seen it. I'm telling you, I think it's a good movie. Neat. I did not say Professor thinks it's bad. I don't have anything to say. I think it's, I think it's pretty good. It's cool. Pretty good movie. Pretty cool. So that's um, that's the straight story. That that's, is the straight that, story. That's, that's that's the movie. We told it to you straight. I got three wonderful and strange questions of the week for you. Are you sure you don't want to say anything for the next hour or anything like that? Why? What are we Maybe. doing for time right now? Uh, right now, um, about an hour and forty minutes. That's nice. That's smooth. <laughs> um. That's smooth, smooth Peter Pan peanut butter. Slather that on. <laughs> um, no, I'm good. No, I'm good. We, we good, fam. We good. All right. 
So with these questions of the week, what do you got for me? What what, what can I tell you? Number one, mm-hmm. how has the straight story shaped your understanding of David Lynch as an artist? And you're not allowed to say not at all because this is enough of an anomaly that it has to have taught you something about him. Would it? Yes. As far as I'm concerned, it still is an overall tale told about a person with a live action sort of appeal, a true life story. He's done this before in the past and he's just doing it in a respect that may be a little bit different from his norms, but it really hasn't changed that much. This has not uh, informed your views of David Lynch in any new way. Not really. Nothing's changed. Not really. That's incredible. We've just, we've worked through like ideas of him, like working through like smaller areas, going for a small town feel in the past. Mm -hmm. We've gone through areas in which he's been involved with uh, actors personally before. As far as this goes, I'm getting the least amount of history with David Lynch individually in this film. And this story is overall a comfortable film. I don't think that it does anything to push any bounds left or right. And it doesn't really push me in any direction beyond Comfort. To me, that's the that's the standout thing is the fact that he can do that. David Lynch is the kind of guy who is able to make a G-rated normal family film. Then it's not his bread and butter. Yeah, but it is something he can do. Okay, and if that's something that can give you a different sound that comes out of your mouth than usual, in which it's becoming more higher in tone, very well. I I guess not so much. What I would say is that you know when you look at all this David Lynch content that's consistently so dark. So weird, so dreamy, so surreal. To know that David Lynch is someone who not only can make a G-rated family film, but he was so moved by the story that we saw that he wanted to be the one to make this film, even though it was against his entire repertoire of filmmaking, right? It says that there is a part of him who just vibes with this sort of simple, good story. He is not always dark, dreary, depressing Lynch. There is this element of him that resonated with this particular movie, and there's no, like strings attached to that. I think that's that very interesting. I think there's been moments in films in the past for him. And I think that David Lynch is a talented enough filmmaker. I have no doubts onto these ends. And I think that especially whenever it's being led by a, a lot of other people in the writing department and mm-hmm. so on that, yeah, no, it most certainly is still possible. Well, who, who knows? It, maybe if David Lynch did have more writing inside of this, maybe it might've been a bit different if you will. But regardless, no, I think, he made a good film. This, you did uh, Lynch. this slides nicely to my second question. Does this movie feel like a David Lynch movie to you? It feels like a overall movie David Lynch like had made. Yes, not in the extremities like we've discussed before on like him handling the writing and then pushing mm-hmm. inside the directing. It's not him like fully submerged in the pudding. Um, what flavor is that pudding? Butterscotch. I don't know. Yes. Um, but this, one, this one's vanilla, but. <laughs> Regardless, it's still you still we still get dapplings, if you will. It's, if, dapplings? It, it's like a spice, Ooh, if you will. A um, dappling <laughs> of Lynch that is found throughout the film that's more so feels like Lynch that you and I have both said before have felt like Lynch. It's just not heavy into that Lynch film, probably for obvious reasons. But I don't think that that discounts it as a David Lynch film. But then again, I don't look into film very similar to others, if you will. Um, by an overall director's mark. I think that I do sometimes chase certain directors, if you will, because I've liked their work in the past, but nothing in which I'm pushing mm. or looking out for that. It's yep. I just look for what these individual films do for themselves for the most part. Uh, to me, it's like akin if Alfred Hitchcock randomly made a Western in the middle of his career. Like, it's just one of those things that when you think of 
you know, Alfred Hitchcock. You think of a certain type of movie. You think of David Lynch. Think of a certain type of movie. There are certain directors who cement themselves with an identity in the public consciousness or within at least film culture that Lynch kind of is one of those people who, like I said before, the term Lynchian gets thrown around a lot. So it is, to me at least, anecdotally interesting to see a movie like this in the midst of all this ideas of what is and is not Lynchian. That this movie is also, like, by, like, literal definitions, Lynchian. It was made by the guy. Mm -hmm. But this is not a movie that typically people would describe as Lynchian. Mm -hmm. This movie is at odds, I think, with the public conception of what David Lynch does. Hmm. Um, third question. Last one. Promise. <laughs> what do you, what do you think an R-rated version of the straight story would look like? If David Lynch had gone and made this dark and and full-blown Lynch is going to be getting an NC-17, he had to barely skirt around the rules. He makes the most gruesome, gritty R-rated straight story there ever was. This is going to be a boring answer, but we'd probably get more like moments where say for example, war as well as the present Mm -hmm. might intersect, if you will. There will be points in which he may have himself flashbacks into these instances, and we would probably have a more direct perspective into those things. Mm -hmm. I think that's the only main difference is. I mean, you have to, you have to change what really happened to, to fully immerse yourself in that. I could imagine, like, maybe the things we see along the travel are much more gruesome and much more dark. Maybe the, the people you run into are a much more shadier variety of people or, or are hurt by more extreme circumstances. Mm -hmm. You know, he straight up runs into um, Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern from Wild at Heart. Their car is broken down. <laughs> you know, he talks about his snakeskin jacket. Ever since my belief in individual liberty and personal freedom. Mm -hmm. And he's like, this is my tractor. And this is my lawnmower. God, it's a lawnmower, not it a tractor. still all the way to the end. You cannot tell the difference between a tractor and a lawnmower. They're very similar, you know? They both move upon crop. <laughs> Grass is a crop. <laughs> sure. Okay. Sure, keep digging. Keep digging. I'm going to crop myself out of the situation, actually. <laughs> um, okay, that's a fair answer, that it would just be um, more on the war side, possibly. I think the language, you know, you, you could get, get some more spicy words. You might lose certain actors. You might language. lose the main actor, yeah. Yeah. And obviously, I don't think it would be worth it. I don't think <laughs> I don't think this movie should be grittier. I'm not thinking that. Yeah. I think the movie is what it sets out to be, what Lynch sets out for it to be. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you could necessarily change it and make it too much better while still being the same kind of thing. <laughs> you know? I know. Professor, do you have any strange questions for me? Not really. You know, I, I go through the work here of, you know, doing our extensive research, and I I make these questions, you know, and I, I do all these things, you know, and, and what do I get in return, Professor? You get a copy uh, to borrow of the Access Guide to Twin Peaks, in which that mm. is what we'll be covering next time. Whoa. On the wonderful and strange Twin Whoa. Peaks Lawcast. That's all you get. Nothing else. You're in this for the long haul. You're not going to be... If neither of us are going to get rewards, it's going to stay that way. Just me. And me. Forever. Together. Me. Good. <laughs> <laughs>